0: Hello, uh, welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and my great partner, Emma Turner. Hello, Emma.
1: Hello, Tom. Are you well? I'm very excited, by the way, about tonight.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. So we've been wa- we've been actually wanting to talk to you for ages and we finally got around to getting on the show. So big warm welcome to Professor Rob Coe.
2: Hello. Yeah, it's a great honour and a pleasure. And I'm also looking forward to it.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So, I mean, you're... You're, one, you're someone who, in this sort of edu, uh, research-engaged uh, chat world, is someone who I've been aware of and, and sort of followed for, must be at least 10 years now. I think we first met on a on a jolly to, to Washington, D.C.
2: Oh, yes. Gosh, so, we look, could talk about that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I know. And I think that was, a, was the same year that the Sutton Trust um, Great Teaching Report came out. And yeah. there's lots of things I want to talk to you about that. So you've done so many things and you've been someone who's got a lot of people want to come and see your sessions at Research Ed. So it's great honour to have you on the show. For people who are not sure about what your work is and who you work for now, do you want to just give people a bit of a summary of what you're up to and, and, and who your partners are?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, it's always quite difficult to do that, I think. So I'm uh, my official titles are that I'm the Director of Research and Development at Evidence-Based Education. Evidence-based education is a small startup based in the northeast of England. Sunderland is the office. Uh, I think there's 14 of us now, something like that. And we are basically about supporting teacher learning, teacher growth, teacher development by using research evidence. I guess. I mean that, in a sense, everybody's doing that, so that maybe doesn't tell you much. But that that's the uh, the day job, and I work four days a week for EBE, so that's most of my time now. Um, I also, I'm a senior associate at the Education Endowment Foundation, and um, that means I just do bits of consultancy really here and there and little pieces of work for the EF. I've been involved with the EF really from its beginning in 2011, I think it started. Um, And, you know, I think it's a great organization. Uh, So really happy to be part of that. And I do other bits and pieces as well, sort of freelancing stuff um for different people and um but but i would say if someone says to me you know what do you do I'd, I'd say i'm a researcher uh i was a teacher for seven years i taught maths and secondary and um then i became a researcher and you know if i'm talking about anything to do with education it's not because of my skill as a teacher it's because <laughs> of my knowledge of research i think and, uh, you know, you can be sort of tempted to stray into uh, giving advice about things that aren't really within your expertise. And um, obviously I try not to do that, but uh, it it it, obviously, it does blur in, you know, what, what is research, what is practice? And in some ways that's one of the really interesting questions about how does, you know, what do we mean by something like evidence-based education or how, how does research evidence play into um, how much notice of it should be classroom teachers take and so on you know what what, what do they need to know
0: well it's great I mean I think your contribution to our community of educators and te- teachers mm-hmm. and researchers is, is is brilliant because we don't have that many uh, researchers who are kind of known and and, and communication of ideas is important isn't it? there's lots of names that are sort of cited in in papers that people refer to but then you're someone who's kind of you know accessible and part of the community and it feels and that to me is great and I think the fact that you've been a teacher before I mean do you feel like that has h- helped you I mean the, you, yeah. you might, you're not drawing like a, you you were a teacher and you've know what it's like to do the work
2: well yes I think so and I do you know I I think that's an important part of my identity I don't I'm not sure I always you know if I say it I think oh does that kind of gain me any kind of credibility at all I mean it was 30 nearly 30 years ago that <laughs> I was last working in a school um and quite a lot has changed since then so I I never um I mean Ofsted had just started but I was never inspected by Ofsted um there weren't really league tables at that point you know 1995 was when I stopped being a teacher it it was a very different world we did have GCSEs but again um you know when I first started teaching the first year I was teaching it was still O-level so um it, it, yeah lots changed since then and um so so I I don't know what what you know what does that give me still I think it does give me a bit as a just the kind of knowing what it's like to work in a school a bit is quite important I think people who've never worked in a school there's some quite sort of basic things that they they struggle to understand I mean the way schools operate is bizarre isn't it and if you hadn't worked <laughs> in one you, you're not going to think that would be well, the sensible right. way to do things
0: yeah, so Emma, so what, what's... I mean, I, I could wax lyrical for ages here, but I, what's your uh, kind of way into to hearing about Rob and knowing what he does?
1: I'm just still smiling. The fact he said, does bits and bobs for the EEF, like some of the biggest, <laughs> biggest, largest, most far-reaching, hard-hitting pieces of research that are cited by teachers. Just a few bits and bobs, that made me smile. Okay. Um, no, I think that my um, kind of first dalliance with with Rob's work and the work of Rob and his colleagues was the great teaching toolkit when it kind of really pulled together so much thinking and so and put forward both the research and also the articulation of what lots of people were doing but hadn't got a name for hadn't got that shared understanding of why what we were doing was working so I, I, I found that was hugely useful working with early career teachers working with colleagues i just found that was my my first kind of introduction to your work and then obviously have fallen down multiple rabbit holes ever since (laughs) delving ever deeper into your wider work rob
2: yeah that's brilliant no i mean it's always it's lovely to hear that when any anyone working in a school says "Oh, you know i read this thing and it, it was really useful it it is incredibly gratifying to hear that and uh, I never get tired of that and I never take that for granted I, I just think that's really important I mean you, you were saying earlier uh, Tom about how uh, there aren't a lot of researchers who are really engaged with that world of teachers and I think that's true and I think it's a real shame actually and I think the way the sort of teacher researcher as an identity has come out you know it didn't used to be a thing at all when I was a Teach. In fact, I left teaching to do a PhD, and I was pretty sure I would go back into school with my PhD and just, you know, pretend I didn't have it, or you know, be a bit embarrassed about it because it wasn't going to get me any favours. You know, people would just think, "Well, who does he think he is?" It wasn't a sensible thing to do if you wanted a career as a teacher, and I think that's changed a lot now. I think. you know, teachers are writing books. I mean, goodness knows how many books are there by written by full-time teachers or or working classroom teachers, and really fabulous books as well. They're not just sort of dribbly rubbish. You know, there's some really really good ones out there, and um, the, just the, just the kind of things like research ed, where you get I don't know what is it eight hundred teachers or something in a room together, and they're all talking about research on a Saturday. Mm. I, I just think that's extraordinary. It's fantastic. In fact, I'm going to ask
0: you about a couple of your talks recently because you're, you know, like a headliner and some of them, you know, you really provoke people's thoughts. So this is all I, I, I want to ask you about this now is actually because it's about the sort of nature of, of research and, and what value it has to people. So there's a few things where I feel like we've been on a bit of a journey over the last uh, t- you know, 10 or so years where you've got, um, you know, sort of like principles and kind of concepts as mm. someone like Dan Woodingham would present, like here's some ideas about memory, for example, and then yeah. that's at one end. And on the other end, you have this sort of period, I, I would say largely popularized by John Hattie, which is a kind of measurable effect size idea. And, and the EF still uses a kind of uh, yeah, an effect yeah. size idea, where you sort of have this idea that a particular <laughs> technique has been studied, and it's been shown to have this effect compared to this other uh, technique. So you've got the sort of precision or kind of suggestion of some mm-hmm. precision. Then you've got general concepts, yep, and then as yep. you coming along to research, head saying sort of crazy things like we don't really know very much about this. <laughs> so I'll, I'll pick that a bit for us. You know what can research tell us really about things that the teachers do?
2: Yeah. So if we um separate out John Hattie for a minute and just talk about the EF teaching learning toolkit and there are effect sizes in there and they talk about months of gain as the the metric now when i talk about that and i was involved in the the original version of that that was the really the thing that got me started on uh doing work that that resonated around schools i think in particular and that led to the what makes great teaching report you know which was launched at that that event in washington that we both enjoyed and then the the um great teaching toolkit in a way was the Um, sort of follow up to that as well five years later refining that so um, but the the EF teaching learning toolkit is not about this technique versus that technique it's about specific interventions and that's a really important distinction so where people have um, identified uh, a choice of things you can do an intervention is a is a conscious deliberate explicit choice to say Let's do a thing. And usually an intervention is more than just a choice that a teacher makes. You know, well, shall I uh, do a retrieval quiz this lesson or not? Usually it's about more of a package, a program. And mostly what EF evaluates are programs. And mostly what's in the, the evidence that contributes to the effect sizes in the toolkit are programs. So, so they're they're more of a kind of whole thing. Uh, Often there's bits of training involved, there's materials, you know, they're they're a package. And that's the thing we can evaluate. What's really hard to evaluate is um, much more of the kind of everyday choices about, um, I can see a few students at the back of the room not really paying attention. Should I do A or should I do B, you know, where A and B are two real things you might consider. And I'd say mostly we don't have a lot of research that can answer that kind of question.
1: That's really interesting because I was reading a, an overview of a, a lecture that you're giving, and you meant it mentions in the blurb about the importance of developing teacher intuition. Mm. And I really wanted to ask you tonight about what your thoughts are on what or how you develop that intuition. It, is it innate? Is it developed? How do we refine it? Um, because I'm I'm guessing that that's what helps you to make those choices yeah. in the moment.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So intuition is really interesting. You know, we all have intuition, don't we? We have those gut feelings. We have that kind of immediate response to things often uh in situations where we've reacted before we've even realized we had a choice or you know we've we've, we've made a choice or a decision and often it's quite subconscious or below the level of awareness. And when you think about classrooms, um, that's so much what you need. I mean, they're, they're such hectic places. They're such busy places. There's such an overload of of cognitive well, load. You know, it's just far too much. You can't process it all because you've got so many people doing so many different things. And, um, you know, things can just go off the rails so quickly. And almost always, if you have to stop and think about well, what am I going to do here, you've, you've missed it. No, it's too late, you can't, you haven't got that time. And you also haven't got that brain space to do it. So intuition has to be your friend here. But on the other hand, when you talk about intuition, of course, we know that there's lots of cognitive biases and gut feelings can just be wrong more often. And one of the cognitive biases that we all have is to be more certain about our intuitions than we probably should be. For example, you know, we trust them much more than we maybe should. And you know, that's because we're human beings. That's not because we're bad. So um, so it's a really tricky thing, but there's also really interesting research about what intuition is and um, expertise as well, different kinds of expertise. And intuition, the way I think about it is, that a lot of this draws on um, Robin Hogarth's work, for example, um, is that it's, it's really just experience distilled, it, it's memory of, thing, of rec- pattern recognition, of having seen similar things before And, you know, the last time I was in this situation, I did this, it didn't end well, so I'm going to do something different, or last time it did end well, and I'm going to do the same again. And so we're recognising patterns in situations, and we're learning behaviours that we've done before, essentially, and and, uh, making those well-trodden paths that then become the natural thing that we do without having to think too hard about what we do. Because, again, of the characteristics of human beings is that we don't like to have to think too hard we like to just do stuff that's easy and obvious so intuition is our friend there provided that we have enough experience and enough valid experience and again Hogarth talks about um, kind and wicked environments the idea that some environments are good for learning in because you get good feedback about whether things are going well or not Um, and so you can improve you can learn from feedback that's inherent in the situation, and that helps to build the intuition that you need. And uh, in a wicked environment, you don't—you either don't get much feedback, or you get feedback that's misleading, or unhelpful, or, or meaningless. And so then it's really hard to learn, and you you sort of plateau. You don't actually improve. Experience doesn't turn into improvement. And um, I, my claim is that classrooms, in their natural state, are more wicked than kind at least once you get past the certain point of learning the basics. So I think beginner teachers very quickly, or not very quickly, but reasonably quickly learn how to manage behavior, for example, or most of them do. And they improve massively. When you see them come in new, you know, they're terrible mostly. Not all. I know some are are sort of natural geniuses at it. I I was always terrible at it. I I really had to struggle to learn how to uh, manage behavior and manage a classroom. Um, and I got a bit better, but i I didn't get as good as I think I could have been. But uh, one of the reasons people do get better is you you're always you're immediately getting really good feedback about whether what you're doing is working in relation to managing the room and managing students' behavior. But in relation to some other really important things like um, is anyone in this room actually learning anything? It's really, really hard to get good feedback. Because um, because learning's invisible, it happens in silently inside people's heads. There's no obvious sign of it. So that's really how I got into the the poor proxies. You know, that was another I was, was gonna
0: ask you that. That was like, you know, that was gonna be my next question. Because to me that that is like, you know, right up there in the, the Prof Co, you know, like top yes. five all time greatest hits. Yes. And it's probably it, one of one of the conference slides, you know, if you had a rank in the most tweeted conference slides, your poor proxies one. And it, right. it it came from that Sutton Trust report, sort of, sort of celebration tour, because <laughs> I'm not sure if it's something explicitly like that in the report itself, but
2: yeah, no. Talk- so it came out of, um, I mean, just just sort of unwinding wandering the history. So the the first thing, as I say, I think was the. Um, toolkit stuff, which is just basically... So that came about in 2010 was the first version of that. And it was because there was discussion. It was There was an election in 2010 in England, and all three parties were talking about this idea of a pupil premium. That was new then. We hadn't had it before. And they had slightly different notions of what it was and how much money it was going to be and so on. But um well, slightly naively, perhaps, we thought that this might be extra money for schools <laughs> and that they would therefore... There was a kind of free choice, there would be some level of free choice about, well, how do we spend this extra money? And the Sutton Trust had done some um, surveys and polling and focus groups and things of school leaders. And the things they said they would spend it on were, well, we'll we'll have some more teaching assistants or some more teachers so we can have smaller classes. Uh, And we knew, this is uh, Steve Higgins and myself, basically, that those were both quite problematic in terms of, Uh, I mean, not necessarily bad things to do, but if what you wanted was to help more students to learn more, they were both likely to have quite small impacts and likely to be really expensive. So there are almost certainly better things you could do with a small amount of money than hiring more teaching assistants or uh, more teachers. So there was a mismatch between, I think, reasonably good and clear evidence about what are likely to be best bets for spending a bit of money uh, and what most head teachers said they would do with it and that's why we did the um, the toolkit originally to say well here's what the evidence says about class size and, and about the impact of teaching assistants some of that was quite controversial because it basically said they don't make any difference I mean there wasn't a lot of good research about teaching assistants for example um, and there's been a bit more since and I think what we know now is that they they do or certainly can make a positive difference it's not huge though um, and they are quite expensive compared to other things. So, you know, these are trade-offs. I, I don't think the position has really massively changed on that, but it has changed a bit. Uh, and it was it was controversial and still is controversial. And, you know, it's an example of where we need to be careful about mm. uh, oversimplifying research. But that uh, the, the things that the um, research says are effective are things like feedback and um, metacognition interventions and that kind of thing. And um, and I'd present this research to to teachers, and they would often want to argue with me, which I love I, I love it when people argue with me. And they would say,, uh, well, how can how you're saying class size doesn't make a lot of difference, but you're saying feedback really does. surely we can give better feedback if we have smaller classes and you know that seems like a contradiction. And those discussions got into talking about pedagogy, basically. well, how if you've got a class of 30, Are there strategies that you can use to give students feedback or to get feedback from students about what their current levels of thinking and understanding are? And, uh, you know, my question would be something like, well, if you've got a strategy uh, that you think could work with a class of 15 but couldn't work with a class of 30, then tell me what that strategy is. Um, and nobody could because there aren't, stra- you know, there are strategies that could work with a class of five that wouldn't work with a class of 30. But basically, if it works with a class of 15, it's pretty much going to work with a class of 30. And no one's talking about reducing class size below 15 because, you know, if you go from 30 to 15, you've more or less doubled the unit cost of providing education. And, and you know, even in 2010, when there was lots of money in schools, nobody thought that was possible. So uh, it's not really on the table, I think. And so that pedagogy discussion, sorry, this is a rather long answer, got into um, thinking about, well, what exactly is, you know, what's the point of being a teacher in a classroom? It's about learning. And some of those discussions with teachers seemed to me that they weren't really focused on learning. So they would say, like, well, I can give more attention to students if there aren't as many. Yes, you can give more attention. Does that mean more of them learn more? because it may not you know and giving them attention it seemed to me was a just a, a quite a weak proxy for um the assumption that they'll they'll actually learn more they might or they might not and that's really where that list came from it was I hear some things that uh came out of discussion or I'd heard teachers say about that, that they thought were good things that they were perhaps aiming to do in their classrooms and i think uh, perhaps a sometimes a bit of a distraction from the really important thing which is getting students to to wrap their heads around the ideas that we want them to learn and understand, you know, to think hard about hard ideas.
0: So, so it's an amazing because then you have to think about well, what a good what a good sort of uh, this idea of, of proxies for learning, you know, full yeah. stop. It's the idea. I mean, I'm going to read it out now because this, this is a slide I've got it in front of me. It says, "Proxies for learning: Students are busy, lots of work is done, especially written work. Students are engaged, interested, and motivated." And thinking, "Damn, not even that." Um, Students are getting attention, feedback and explanations. I like this one. Classroom is ordered, calm and under control. The curriculum has been covered. And then this one. At least some students have supplied correct answers. (laughs) That's like saying, it's kind of such a bubble bursting list. You think, oh, God, like.
2: What am I left with? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've always tried to make clear, and I suppose I haven't made clear enough, but um, those are all good things, you know, they're not none of those are things that I wouldn't want to see in a classroom if I go into a classroom, you know, it's better if it's calm and ordered, than if it's chaotic and and crazy. Um, It is better if students have done some writing or or some work, you know, it is all those things are good. Uh, It's just that they're no guarantee. So they're sort of necessary, but definitely not sufficient.
1: I remember, Rob, sitting there. It was my first year of headship, 2010. I remember sitting there with that on my desk and going, oh, your date. (laughs) I'm thinking, how do I have this conversation with staff now about, you know, I've just taken on this role. How do I actually sort of throw that hand grenade into the conversation and say, this may all look really lovely, but it's not necessarily moving children's thinking forward. So yeah. I just when you said 2010, Tom, I had a little flashback to my oh, dear. right? <laughs> but that, that kind of brings me on to so if if they're kind of the poor proxies and then you suddenly realize that you might have a bigger job on your hands, I wanted to sort of talk about implementation because there's a lovely line in that you said about tiny and the effect of tiny and slow changes. Because sometimes you as a head or as a CEO you read a report. You think, "I've got to do it. I've got to do mm. it now. I've got to do it. I've got to do it quickly. It needs to be have been in place by yesterday." Mm-hmm. So it was just your thoughts, really. On so you found this as a leader, you've you've stumbled across or you've found this information. How how do you go about kind of reining it in and doing it and doing things in that sustained, cumulative, slower way?
2: Yeah. Well, so school leadership is a little bit of a mystery to me. If I'm honest, I'm not. I've never been a school leader. Um, I have written a review about school leadership or the research on school leadership, so I, I feel like I've jumped a little bit into that pool. But um, as far as giving school leaders advice about how to do that, I don't know. I do think one of the things I see though is that um, there's a kind of action bias in this that which we we feel compelled to do stuff and. Actually, often what's more effective is not to react to things, not to certainly not to overreact to things, not to try and add new things to do as well. Um, quite often, I think what what schools need is stuff taken away uh, so that they can really pair back and focus on the basics and I know that's really really difficult to do as a leader. I do um, have experience of that um, as well. and I think that genuine improvement is mostly very slow and and steady. You know, it's incremental. It doesn't have, it's not transformational. It's not, there's not a big bang. I think you, sometimes you need that big bang. Sometimes you need to get buy-in and you need to see dramatic change. And there are some aspects of of leadership. You know, when, when schools are really in chaos and behaviour is just terrible and the way everyone feels about the institution is is really gone down... Then I think you know getting sorting out some of those things and re-establishing some norms and and rules about behavior and those kinds of things that can have a really dramatic effect quite quickly. But that's just creating the hygiene for the learning to be able to begin. That's not that doesn't directly impact on learning. And learning is the most important thing. I you know keep coming back to that. I think it's all the other things are in the service of learning. Really, it's about what's going on inside children's heads.
0: mind the gap is produced in association with haringey education partnership hep is a school zone schools led school improvement company supporting you to provide children and young people with the best possible start in life if you're interested in hearing more about hep follow the link in the show notes So in evidence-based education, you've got a, a, a whole program out there, which is, you know, another you know, toolkit, Great Teaching Toolkit. A lot of people are talking about that and using that. And, But it's sort of supported by a model for Great Teaching, which is a kind of framework for, for understanding teaching. And yeah. it's got these four, I think you call them dimensions.
2: Yeah.
0: I list them out. They're, they're, they're uh, Understanding the content, which I guess is curriculum. Creating a supportive environment, which is like behavior and other things maximizing opportunity to learn, which is interesting, because that's a slightly subtle one around, uh, again, linked to behavior. But yeah. then the main one, which is the bigger one, is activating hard thinking. And that, to me, is just like a, a genius bit of phrasing <laughs> there. But that those four areas, really, when you look at it, it's like, well, there, there we go. That's It's probably, I said this, and then I sort of saw it, like the best sort of A4 capture of teaching I've ever I've ever come across um to be so succinct and yet so kind of thorough thorough at the same time
2: mm-hmm. how, how did you what was the process to devise that well so the foundation was the the Sutton Trust report the what makes great teaching from 2014 and um that was an attempt to try and start looking at the research on pedagogy and and what teachers do in classrooms. And what we know about um the 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 activities the strategies the behaviors that are likely or most likely or or best best bets best evidence that we've got these are the things that are contribute to more learning happening um and there's a fair bit of research on that and we looked at um intervention studies so where you try to change how teachers behave in classrooms for example um, we looked at studies that are more correlational, so in schools where this kind of thing is more common, or in classrooms where this kind of thing is more common, students are learning more. And we also looked at the kind of uh, fundamental psychology research about how learning happens and what we know about the the mechanisms, if you like. And where we found convergence, um, we we tried to uh, put that together and say, right, well, these are the things that, that look, look as are the best bets. Um and that you know that report had a big impact. Um, partly, I think, also because we put in it some things that don't have an impact. So things like uh, lavish praise was the expression that people picked on. You know, which we all like, and teachers love to give, and it can be right to give praise, uh, but it can undermine learning actually, and and often isn't that helpful for learning. Um, and you have to be careful about how you do it. Well, I suppose that's true of most things, but I think this was. Um, Uh, Some of that was a bit controversial. For example, learning styles was another one we put in there, which um, uh, still people think that that's a good idea. Um, But, you know, it was already clear long before that, that it it wasn't really. So so anyway, so that was 2014. And then um, various points in the years after that, I thought, well, we should, in fact, almost before it was published, I thought, well, we need to update this because... There's some, you know, I found a new study or there's something else that I hadn't quite thought of. And um, that's always the way I think when you publish a report, you think, oh, if only I'd put that in. So that was always on the agenda. I had a little notebook full of, uh, you know, updates when we do them. And when I started working at uh, evidence based education, that was in 2019, we thought, right, well, it's coming up for five years. Maybe we should do um, an update. And so we started thinking about, right, well, what would that look like? And I think um, uh, one thing that I had in mind was to improve the way we communicate um, that overall structure, you know, to try and break it down. And there was lots of really uh, good research, uh, research from, from Germany and the US and, and, and um, Norway and, you know, many other countries where they have these, these uh, convergence of models about the things that make a difference. And they're broadly the, the dimensions two, three, and four, Of the model, so the relationships, which is um, uh, dimension two, the the maximising opportunity, which is really about managing a classroom and behaviour, and then as you say, activating hard thinking, dimension four. Those are in a lot of models. The stuff about the curriculum was a bit more specific to England at that time because we had this um, uh, much more talk about curriculum than the new framework from Ofsted, for example, was very heavy on that, and lots of people were thinking hard about their curriculum, I think probably driven by Ofsted, but it, it does matter. Teachers' knowledge of that curriculum, their knowledge about the kinds of misconceptions that that kids will have and um, their ability to come up with good questions, for example, good assessment items or good questions around content. and And all of that is quite content specific. So, you know, if I've taught i don't know thermodynamics lots of times then i'll have a repertoire of really good questions to ask students i'll know where they get stuck in that in that topic uh, and then if i'm teaching i don't know ionic bonding or something the next week i may not have taught that for a couple of years and i won't have that same subject knowledge so i'm i'm still a chemistry teacher but you know there's some bits that i know and some bits that i don't know So that's, I think, uh, basically added that in. But um, what we did in in the process of then writing that, what became clear to me was that another review that just sets out a model is not really going to help anyone. You know, it's nice to have and people like to have it. And it provides a basis for a discussion, having a model that says these are four things that matter. We can split them up a bit further. There's 17 um, individual elements listed under those four headings. And um, if you want to get better as a teacher, then focusing on one or more of those 17 things is quite likely to be helpful. Focusing on anything else is a lot less likely to be helpful. That, that's the kind of simple message of it. But what it doesn't tell you is, well, supposing I want to get better at you know, element five or whatever. Uh, how do I do it? How do I get better at um You know, building um, relationships of of trust and respect with students if I don't have that, or even if I do have it, I can still improve it. How do I get better at at, um, establishing routines in a classroom if that's not something I'm currently doing? How do I get better at um, using questioning to help me understand um, what's in my students' heads and therefore to um, make my teaching more responsive to that? And the answer is you need a whole lot more support. And that's really where the whole great teaching toolkit idea came from, which is that you need tools. You need um, uh, structured learning activities, courses. You need feedback tools. That's a big part of um, my thinking for all the years that I've been a researcher that, uh, as I say, classrooms uh, inherently don't give you great feedback. So can we sharpen that? Can we enhance the feedback you get? By using things like student surveys, for example, asking the children their perceptions of what's going on in classrooms. Not every teacher is going to be up for that, for sure. Um, You have to be a bit brave. You have to be a a bit robust. Um, It can be a bit bruising what students will say to you, but mostly it's helpful.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very. I mean, I think it's because I've, I mean, Emma, you, we've had this discussion a few times that, you know, a model, a kind of reference point is helpful to even just de- develop a shared understanding between a group of teachers about what the problems are that we're trying mm-hmm. to solve. And then, of course, they have solutions. And today I was talking about <laughs> oh God, continuous provision.
1: Um, <laughs> was, oh, was, welcome was, to my world, Mr. Sherrington. I was at an
0: ethics school yesterday where, where the continuous provision there was, um, was pretty spectacular it went up to year two so there's like um and so i mean emma so do, it, do you find these sort of frameworks uh, uh are as relevant as in early years as they are to a sort of secondary math teacher
1: i think that it's it's quite tricky to say this works in this space this doesn't work in this space this because there are elements that are all transformed but not necessarily directly congruent so you will have there will be times in early years or times in key stage one where you will have children all together and so you're going to need strategies for dealing with a larger group there'll be other times where you're working in provision where you're trying to elicit children's understanding of what sense they're making of their um play or their interaction with the environment where you still need that repertoire of rich questioning and knowing how to elicit thinking from from children so I think that it's not a kind of an all or nothing yes or no it's knowing as a teacher how do you develop a great understanding of what great questioning is or what great modeling is or what great scaffolding is. And then in your phase thinking, okay, well, I'm not going to sit all the children in rows all afternoon when they're only age four. That's not appropriate. But I still need to ask these children great questions to elicit their thinking and to move their thinking on. So how can I use that toolkit to apply it in my context? And I think one of the one of the problems that essentially happens is that phases try to replicate each other rather than actually respecting the stage of development of the child um and saying like this is what we know about kind of cognitive science this is what we know about teacher development and this is what we know about child development and let's look at through all the lenses to see which bits i need to apply in this context for this child in this phase but it's not a case of this is for secondary this is for primary this is for early years i may have got that totally wrong Rob, you
2: might be about to correct. No, me. I agree. I, I agree. And I think that's, I think it's really important. I mean, so so one of the caveats, I would say, when we're talking about what, what does research tell us about teachers' practices or classroom practice is that um, most of the research comes from broadly sort of middle years. So um, in the US, say, grades three to eight in elementary schools, um, in mainstream schools, again, uh, as I say, mostly in North America. So um, if we're talking about early years, if we're talking about special schools, if we're talking about um, uh, even older, certainly post-16, but even key stage four, um, we're extrapolating from research that's been done in quite different contexts. Now, uh, I think that's always problematic and we should always be careful. But to be honest, whenever we try and think about how to apply this, we're extrapolating and I think the key thing is that context is really, really important. It's about how what does this look like in my classroom with me as, you know, the person I am, the style I have, the relationship I have with those children, um, the context around me, you know, their history, their, um, their community, all of those other things that make a difference to how you translate the principles into specific kinds of practices. And what I think I find in general is that, the principles seem pretty universal. You know, you talked about, say, questioning. Um, That's important in any teaching, isn't it? Right from uh, preschool through to university, we use questioning. Uh, It's different types of questions, for sure, handled in different ways. Um, The relationships between the teacher and the, the student, those are important. You know, there has to be trust, there has to be respect. That's true, again, whether they're three years old or 18 years old or whatever. Um, And so I think at the level of principle, these are pretty universal. I mean, there might be some contexts where uh, something, certainly the the weight you put on them will vary. So in some contexts, building those relationships is the most important thing to get right first. In other contexts, it's about getting them to think hard. Uh, You know, in both contexts, it's about both but your priorities might be different according to how you read that context, you know, your history, your relationships and so on. So uh, teachers have to be able to make those judgments. And, you know, there again, we come back to intuition, we come back to expertise, but there is no, there are no recipes here. You can't say uh, follow these steps and and everything will be fine because you um, it, well, rather like with recipes, actually, you know, two people follow the same recipe. It's very rare that they'll produce exactly the same dish because there's a lot of stuff that's unstated in a recipe about uh, what you do that isn't spelt out in detail. And, and individuals bring different things to it. And, you know, maybe their ovens are different temperatures or whatever. But, you know, a recipe doesn't fully define the whole thing. So, I think it's the same with teaching, that you have to have that expertise, like like the person who understands when they read the, you know, beat the egg or whatever, what that means. The same thing with the teacher who, um, you know, is reading, let's say reading a walkthrough and thinks, right, okay, I can visualise how this works without some expertise. They can't, actually. No, you're right. And I mean... so part of what we have to do is to build that expertise, that, that judgment about, um, you know, we talk about the why, how, when, and with what. Um, so they need to understand well why does this work? How does it work? When, you know when should I use it? What else has to have happened first? Um, if I change it this way, will it still work? Some people think those are um, you know we need to squeeze out those um, uh, adaptations or le- they worry about lethal mutations that the teachers will turn it into something that doesn't work. And of course they might, but I think it's inherent in teaching that you adapt stuff. you can't just follow it you know, like a script, you have to be able to do it your own way that fits your context, and therefore you have to have the expertise that allows you to make those judgments appropriately. Interesting, isn't it? Because like
0: there's a line, We, I mean, I, this is the like my daily conversation about the mutations, like recently Sort of seen some teachers where they're using whiteboards, which is good, but then the whiteboard was like one between two. So <laughs> the kids is basically watching their friend do the answer all the time. Okay. You could look at it close up and say, look at that kid just going... Oh, yeah, nice work, mate, you know, like to their friend. And you're thinking, that's changed the purpose. Mm-hmm. But then there's a the difference between that and that adaptation, a teacher with a certain character and a bit of a kind of je ne sais quoi about them, like, doing their thing. And you're thinking, well, look, no one else can be that. But look how how they've made that work through some of sheer force of character. So I want to just – we're going to run out of time before we, before we know it. I want to ask you about this whole thing about the, the, the research you've done into teacher development and the kind of the last – uh, years research at um, Bombshell which was <laughs> um, you know inst- is instructional coaching the, the new brain gym uh, and the answer of your talk was no yeah I spent an hour fretting thinking that you're <laughs> <laughs> thinking, oh my god you know it's he's going to say it's all rubbish but you didn't you said you said basically it's difficult to get right and kind of therefore often yeah. isn't what it, what it says it is but that we haven't got that much time, but what's your sort of message <laughs> around that, that you'd like people to sort of explore further maybe?
2: Well, I, I partly, I think what I was trying to do was was to puncture a, a little bit of a bubble there because it seemed to be, it, it's become a bit of a craze and people are talking about it a lot and lots of schools are doing it. And it, um it always worries me when these things become suddenly very popular because I think, well, the evidence on this hasn't really changed. You know, if it was a good thing to do, three years ago it's it's still a good thing to do now and if it wasn't it isn't so so those sorts of sudden changes are always i think uh, a cause for a little bit of concern or a, a bit of a flag um i think i mean there's lots of good evidence about coaching we can call it instructional coaching if you want to i'm not sure that makes any difference but um it, it definitely can be effective in, in a lot of research studies, it has been effective, not in all. So in some studies, it, it um, turns out uh, to be a bit disappointing. And I think my concerns about it are that um, it's partly about the scalability that in order to do, it's a really quite an expensive thing to do. It's a bit like class size. You know, it does increase the amount that students learn. It's just very, very expensive to do. And coaching, I think, can be the same, especially if we're going for one, one-to-one. one And, you know, a lot of models do specify that that is how you have to do it. So um, that means the person who's doing it has to find that time to do it. Who are they? Well, they're likely to be some of your best teachers, So we're taking all our best teachers out of the classroom to give them time to do this support for other teachers. And it might be that it has such a big effect that it compensates for taking all our best teachers away from from the direct impact on children. But um, I'm not sure that I'm convinced about that. And I think the kinds of skills and expertise that you need to be a great coach are, uh, first of all, we don't really know enough about what they are. But secondly, they're almost certainly in pretty short supply, like all expertise so I worry what will happen when people are doing this role because they think it's what they need to do but they don't really have the skills and expertise to do it well Um, you know it's a bit like your example with the whiteboards that you know people could see that and they could think yeah that's great you know you're using many whiteboards but actually it's not quite working and, and it takes quite a lot of skill to even just to be able to see that perhaps and certainly to think about well here's a suggestion or Um, uh, getting them to understand what, you know, see their own classroom a bit more faithfully or or whatever it is you think things, I think they're just quite hard to do. Mm. So um, just a bit of caution around it. I think I'm not saying it's a good, I mean, if I, if I'm in a classroom and I have a chance to be coached by, you know, Tom or Emma, I'm going to bite your hand off. I'm going to say, yes, please and help me. But, you know, if it's my colleague who, um, you know, is probably no better than I am, uh i might think mm.
0: <laughs> so Emma, um, so are you do you has, has rob dented your faith in in coaching or have you does that caution ring true for you
1: no, I think that I think the caution is very necessary. If you're going to do something, you need to do something from a really informed standpoint where you know that you've got the skill and the expertise of the people in the room to make it work. I think saying you're doing something because you think you need to be doing it isn't necessarily going to have the, the effect that you want it to. So if, if it's done with time, care and skill and knowledge, then great. But if we're just doing it because we think we've got to do it, there's probably other things we could do that might have a little bit more of an effect.
0: And the impression that we could, Rob, you'd done that talk about four years ago, so that when we published our our walkthroughs guide, we didn't call it a guide to instruction (laughs) on the front cover. (laughs) It's it's sort of like, like, in a way, a bit sort of, um, you know, riding a wave, I should say. And probably we should have just said a guide to, you know, Professional learning or something a bit more broad, because then because what you're basically saying is do it, you know. I think you you end up sort of advocating more of a kind of group approach, don't you? Is that right?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I, I think that's our kind of working hypothesis, um, and I know you're you're also looking at this, aren't you, in your um, your work with Work Throughs? That, um, uh, and there are there are various models for this. So I think um, you know Dylan Williams' work on um, uh, formative assessment embedding formative assessment as as based around group uh, groups of teachers collaborating together. There's um, really interesting work from a researcher called Jenny Gore in Australia, who's done uh, great work on this as well. And they're all just trying to explore how to make collaboration among teachers work and collaboration. It's a bit like coaching as well. You know, collaboration can be terrible. I've, I've been put in groups with teachers to do stuff and just thought, you know, please, um, swallow me up world because this is terrible and you know it isn't it doesn't work well and, and lots of evidence about different kinds of collaboration and things like um, uh, interventions like lesson study again I think the evidence about that is a bit mixed you know it's quite an attractive idea but again I think it just depends on having the expertise in the group and the focus on the right things in the group so my hypothesis is that collaboration is the way to go But we've got to harness that collaboration we've got to structure it we've got to inform it so make sure there's enough expertise in the group make sure there's a kind of reference point that um a model if you like that people can come back to and say well is this worth doing you know is it is it in the model is it likely to be justified do we know enough about it and um when we've got those safeguards in place then i hope we'll find this is an efficient way to help teachers learn because human beings are by nature collaborative we like to work together we like to share stuff and we work better when we're not just on our own trying to improve our practice but we're with with a group of colleagues with a common agenda about helping each other to improve our practice and that feels a more sustainable model in a real school that you know you could find time for a group to meet occasionally you know ideally say once a fortnight or something like that but realistically it might be less than that and those people if it's a reasonably structured Meeting, they're helping each other. If they've got feedback tools that help them to see their classrooms more truthfully, then um, hopefully this helps them. But as I say, it's a working hypothesis, and and you know, uh, ask me back in a couple of years, and I'll tell you if we've got good evidence that it is in fact working, or or how we've more likely how we've changed it in response to the uh, the flow of evidence coming in, in order to try and optimize it.
0: That sounds like massively sensible. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling I've got a big interior smile here because today the work well, I was in a school in, in uh, Hackney today, um, and that's exactly what they do. I mean, they, they, you know, we went there a term ago. They set up these sort of groups of three people with a kind of leader, and there's a kind of like expertise in the room. They they have cycles of three weeks, and then they yep. do a clever process of other, all the people in the group watch another person, so they they don't just and there's feedback from all sides and then yep. they yep. and you go back in there today and it's like wow look at that look at wait look where you are now it's so great to see and there's a collaboration yeah yep. it's not all like one-to-one it's it's, it's collaborative and it's working yep. it's great yeah
2: i think that feels more sustainable it's it's more of a shared responsibility i think you learn from you know if, if you again observation we haven't talked about that but uh, i think that's another thing that's really difficult to do well i think to observe another lesson and and make correct inferences about what's what's going on what's working um but having people do that uh, you know is a learning experience for them as well um and so the the whole thing i think um kind of pulls itself up by its own bootstraps that's the hope you know we'll see um how sustainable it is how effective it is um, whether people like it and so on, you know, these, it's got to meet, meet all those criteria.
0: Wow, amazing. Okay, well, look, I mean, I think we've come to the end now. Our, our producer's like, we're running on. It's like, oh gosh, okay. okay. Waving
2: his hand, saying, <laughs> Cut. There's
0: cut. so much to talk about. Honestly, Ellesbury, I knew this would be great. And you, the, you've got so many kind of, you know, ways for people to engage with what you're doing. And um, I would recommend to people listening that, you know, go and check out um, you know, the, the evidence-based education website for a start and and look at the the great teaching toolkit for your school um, even if you just you know browse through the, the model which is fantastic but the, the support package and stuff is amazing and of course you know education development foundation still a great source of these studies and, and a great sort of source of discussion in school so look, thank you so much for everything you've done over decades <laughs> and- yeah Agreeing, being such a great sort of active member of our of our our education community, I think it's superb, and um, I'm looking forward to the next bubble you're going to burst. God knows what it will.
2: <laughs> okay, well, that, that's really kind, Tom. I appreciate that coming from you because I think you're uh, definitely also somebody who's made a massive contribution in all sorts of ways. I mean, the uh, you know books, the walkthroughs, the um, the blogs in the days when people used to write blogs. Uh, well both of you uh, m- absolutely um and and just doing this podcast as well it's a great service actually and and the fact that people want to listen to it i think is wonderful
0: yeah well thank you so much and we know we get we got great feedback from people all over um the person I was working with they were saying she listens to our podcast every saturday she's cos for walk, walks on the beach so um <laughs> so thank you very much uh, thanks so much to to professor uh, rob Coe. And thanks to Emma, as always. Uh, and we'll see you again. We've got some great guests lined up. Thanks for joining us. Education, uh, mind the gap. Uh, what's our phrase? That was Come slick,
1: so That was really <laughs> slick.
0: Making education work across the globe. That's it. I mean, that is, I can't even remember our own tagline. It's, it's good that you've been practising that, isn't it? I know. I mean, I'm I'm a, pro, I'm a slick pro, as everyone knows. <laughs> but yeah, there we go. See you soon, folks. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening to Mind the Gap. I'm Emma Turner, and I've been presenting with my co-host, Tom Sherrington. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, share on social media, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on our YouTube channel, search for Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma, or head over to Spotify for an audio version. This podcast was produced in association with Haringey Education Partnership, and our producer for today's episode was Luke Kemper.